Welcome to The Workplace, the program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work. Produced and presented by me, NND. It's AI season here on the program where we are taking a deep dive into artificial intelligence and work and workplaces featuring AI Who's Looking After Me, an exhibition by the Science Gallery London in collaboration with arts organization Future Everything. In this, the first of a two-part episode with artist Wesley Goatley, we are looking at AI, work and the environment through Wesley's installation, which is titled Newly Forgotten Technologies. AI Who's Looking After Me is on at Science Gallery London until the 20th of January 2024. Please visit london.sciencegallery.com, futureeverything.org, and wesleygoatley.com for more information. And to keep up with this and all the other work and workplace-related conversations that take place here in the workplace, please connect with me using hashtag WorkplaceNND. AI season here on the workplace was made possible with the generous support of Arc Club, the fabulous co-working space that is more than just a workspace. Please visit arc-club.com and arc is spelled A-R-C. Wesley, welcome to the workplace. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks for having me. I'm an artist and researcher based in London. My work has for a long time been engaged with some of the nested, more hidden politics around digital technologies. For about the last six or seven years, I've been working specifically around AI technologies, the kind of promises, the myths around them, the hidden politics, the things we should be wary of, and sort of considering what the near future scenarios are of our ongoing cultural relationship in spaces like labor and work, but also with the environment and with the way that it affects different cultures and communities and individuals. Tell us what you intend to share with us today. I want to talk about newly forgotten technologies and I want to talk about that in relationship to the way that the environment or environmental concerns are wrapped up into home automation tools like the Amazon Echo and other smart speakers that are meant to make us better workers both at home and outside of it. And to talk about some of those nested politics and how me as a artist and a researcher responds to those through my work. In relation to materials you use, your preference is? Sound is probably the biggest material that I use in my work. I've got a long history as an experimental musician. My earliest engagements with art was from a political perspective. I was in a lot of hardcore punk bands in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that kind of formed my interest in the combination of politics and art. And that turned into more experimental and a lot more digital work later on but I still perform to this day actually and I've had some nice shows in some venues like Berghain for example in Berlin which are nice opportunities to use sound and performance to have quite complicated interesting discussions with people but right now in a project like newly forgotten technologies the material I'm most interested in is the broken thing the broken smart thing specifically so I use a lot of broken and discarded smartphones tablet computers like iPads smart speakers like the Amazon Echo, things that are not meant to be looked at anymore because once they're broken, they don't really have a place in culture. So I'm really interested in giving them some sort of new life, especially given the huge cost to the planet that most of these technologies represent. To John and Jane Public, AI is a very techie, scientific, kind of left brain sphere of work, of life. 
the polar opposite of the way in which we think of artists. So can you tell us as an artist and a researcher what unique contribution you think artists can make in the field of AI? And I posed this question to Jennifer Wong, the head of programming at the Science Gallery, as well in the opening episode of this series. So I'm very curious to hear what your answer is. It's one I think about a lot. It's why I do the work that I do, is because I do really believe that art has a kind of a nudge effect on culture. Art both is a reflection of the culture that's produced in. I mean, the, what is considered to be art is culturally defined, which is why things can be considered to be art in one decade and not in the other and vice versa. But as well as reflecting that culture, it also informs that culture, it informs people's views of the topics that art engages with. Art's very interesting, sort of magical and a bit terrifying on a number of levels because people are kind of hardwired to take it very, very seriously, to look for deep meaning in sometimes very small gestures. People will have this way of looking at objects that are in a gallery, for example, with like, you know, a famous person's name next to it. They imbue these things with great importance and they look at it in ways that I don't think most people look at other things in the rest of the world, or at least I don't see that much evidence of that going on. And so I think it's a really interesting domain to be talking about anything, particularly AI, I feel, because I have a saying that has been kind of bouncing around in my head for quite some time which is that all AI art is art about AI meaning that any artwork that visibly features AI technologies in it is in some sense contributing to that public discussion. It's informing what people think AI can do and could do in the future, which is particularly potent at a time when there's so much hunger for knowledge about this particular set of technologies and what it could do. And so I think that it's actually a really amazing and terrifying moment to be making work using these technologies in public context right now because of the fact that you know that you are kind of influencing those views and you've got an opportunity to do that well in a way that hopefully kind of challenges the narratives we might want to challenge around these things and not reinforce the narratives that we really need to not reinforce around these technologies, the ones that disempower us or, or put us at distance to how these things work and who operates them and what they can and what they do do. So do you think that is the crucial and unique contribution that artists are making in that they are helping us to think about the technologies in ways that scientists and mathematicians couldn't possibly begin to conceptualize. Is that the point? I'd love to say that that is what all art is doing with these technologies, but I actually think that quite a lot of art seems to be doing the opposite. It basically seems to be what I would call a tech demo, a technical demonstration of the capacities of a technology rather than something that we can really hand on heart refer to as art. I mean, so much work with AI technologies, particularly in the realms of art, say with image generation technologies like Midjourney or something like that is that people make images and they say, this is what AI thinks about X or Y thing, right? Which is effectively saying, this is what happens when I type something into this particular technology. In effect, just doing a technical demonstration of what that technology was built to do. So I actually think a great deal of the work that's made using those technologies, especially that which kind of really sells itself on, on this work is interesting because I'm using AI. You know, this poem is interesting because I co-wrote it with AI. This image is interesting because an AI made it. I think all those things are really much closer 
closer to a sort of a tech demo that you see at a trade show realistically and it, it kind of makes me a bit sad because you know we as artists have got much more capacity than to just advertise somebody else's product you know we've got the capacity to do the things i was just talking about making meaningful comments and take the things that are presented to us and present them back to the world in new and interesting ways which is always personally what i think some of my favorite art has always done which is why i try to do it in my own practice but yeah unfortunately we don't see a great deal of that happening a lot but it does seem to be just echoing or reamplifying narratives from massive tech companies or government organizations with huge budgets for communication which are exactly the people that we don't need to be doing work for Midjourney is one of many what's called generative AI technologies and a lot of people would have seen something like this around already which is where you type a text prompt into a website that says you know make me an image and it will generate an image a sort of a bit of a wonky image that is in response to that text prompt which is created by an algorithm in a sense looking at a huge database of images which these companies have largely stolen from lots of places around the internet and and then trying to kind of make an amalgamation of a new image from all those old images. So think of it like a kind of a form of automatic digital collage. I think the important thing to remember with these sorts of technologies is then they're not actual authors or artists in any way. They're just platforms for generating visual images, much in the same way that ChatGPT works for creating text works in exactly the same way. I keep reading about Midjourney, but I never engaged with the technology. What I want to know is if I type into Midjourney, a squirrel running up a tree. What comes across? Is it the equivalent of a video or is it just like a still shot, like a photograph? Typically a still image because they're much quicker to render and there's many more images online than there are videos. And with these sorts of technologies, it's just about who has the biggest database wins in effect. So if you've got a, a massive database of loads of images, you're more likely to generate an image out of it that kind of looks like the image of a squirrel running up a tree. The technology is quite old in terms of the algorithms behind these things. They're not particularly new. What is new is the size of these databases based on the fact that all these companies have been kind of scraping the internet for the work that we as humans have done, you know, the kind of labor that we've made of like producing an image and putting it on Instagram, for example, or just uploading it to a website. Quite often we are left with very little rights over those images and social media platforms have for a long time worked in this way that anything you upload to a social media platform, you, you no longer really own and that, that platform can use for whatever they want in the future. And so it's really about getting as big a database as possible so that you've got kind of like so many thousands and thousands of pictures of both trees and squirrels so that you can kind of automatically make that sort of collage. The example of the squirrel running up a tree is a good one because there will probably be a lot of photos on the internet of a squirrel running up a tree because it's a place that we often encounter squirrels and people have taken that photo. So to generate a new version of that is not hard when you've got loads of them and you push them all together because a lot of them will probably look the same with the squirrel in the center of the image and a tree being brown and the air around it being blue and the ground being green. But if you instead put in, I want to see a squirrel as a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, then you would basically probably just get a whole bunch of things that really just look like the rocket raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy and not really much like a squirrel because there'll be loads of pictures of Guardians of the Galaxy, but none of them with a squirrel in it. And so you'll get these really kind of wonky 
inserts, the more kind of strange the image you try to generate, which is kind of one of the sad things about those technologies because they reward people for generating images that there are a lot of examples that already exist because they are more likely to produce an accurate image from something they've got loads of examples of rather than something genuinely kind of weird or psychedelic or strange or something that we've never seen before. The systems really struggle to generate those things because it's kind of not what they're built to do. You're speaking my language when you mentioned the real role of artists, to my mind, throughout history. And I always say to on this program, I really feel like true artists are almost, I see them as in a way connected to the divine or something divine or something beyond the human, you know, almost supernatural. And uh, great art or high art has always, uh, throughout time, encouraged us to look beyond what we normally see you know what we see in the physical and so and uh, i think with this technology well society on the whole doesn't value artists to the degree (laughs) that it should and a deep underlying concern i have and fascination almost and a reason i consider this exhibition to be so useful and important is precisely because we are calling on artists to engage with the technology and it's not being confined to the remit solely of the scientific and mathematical brains because we need people to think beyond the realms of the possibilities that the left brain logical kind of minds tend to engage in. Yeah and I think that There are plenty of artists who I think are very right-brained to make that distinction. And obviously in a lot of fields, there is a a bit of a contention around that whole left brain, right brain binary split. But I understand what you're saying with it. I mean, I also think that a lot of scientists that I've met have been incredibly creative, passionate, kind of poetically minded people. And I've met the inverse of people who are quite commercially successful artists. So I I think there are lots of blends and I I think there's a lot of ways to be creative in a lot of different contexts. And, you know, with art being just one. But I do agree that artists join a, a large number of groups of people who have a reduced level of respect or consideration within culture, mothers, for example, and uh, people who work jobs which are kind of quite invisible in the sense that they are hidden away or kept away because they're unpalatable to the people who live in cities like, you know, sewerage workers and things like that. You know, there's a lot of different people who kind of don't fit into the narratives of workers or people doing forms of labor that should be respected in a a kind of 21st century neoliberal or kind of coming to post neoliberal context. And I think partly it's because there's always the question that comes up in say parliament when they're kind of querying the value of an art degree is they're sort of saying, well, yeah, but what does that mean? What, what, what job can you get out of that? What's the productivity? What's the capital that that produces? Which obviously is quite just a sad and depressing state that we're in where like the only value in knowledge or in one's action is in how much productivity or capital it can be kind of translated into. So I definitely think that that is a problem for art but i definitely also think it's a problem for yeah a wide number of other groups so we've sort of established here the role of artists in the grand scheme of things and the significance of their contribution how do you see your particular contribution in this regard in the midst of all the artists who are contributing to ai and helping us to think more deeply and more critically about it what sets wesley goatley apart in this space in relation to ai 
I think as an artist, there's no point making a work that you've seen someone else do before. Personally, not I've not got any interest. I'm really happy if someone makes something that I thought that I should make, you know, that I'm like, oh, they've already done it. Great, I can do something else now, you know, because art's really tiring and my practice isn't like super fun. It's really complicated and technical and, you know, I didn't go to a computer science school. So, you know, I don't have a lot of great skills in it. I just find myself making the work that I want to make because I feel that there's an imperative there because I don't see enough people at least talking about the things I talk about, which in a work like Only Forgotten Technologies is about the environmental cost of these technologies and their kind of hidden environmental realities and trying to break down some of those myths around AI, you know, the myth that it is in some sense autonomous, the myth that it knows better than humans or that it knows anything at all, that it's more than just a bunch of algorithms and a bunch of databases owned by some very powerful people, you know, and it's the powerful people we should be thinking about, not whether or not Alexa is alive, but also the myth that it somehow is intelligent, that we have managed to create artificial intelligence which obviously we couldn't do because we can't even agree on what intelligence is let alone create an artificial version it's like showing somebody like a tiny part of the front wheel of a car and not telling them what a car is or what a car does how big a car is how it runs how an engine operates just showing them that tiny bit of the wheel and then saying right now build me a car even though you don't know the scale the kind of where that car begins and ends you don't really know what it can do you don't really know its ins and outs but you've got to build one now you know that would obviously be an impossible task and we can relate that task to the idea of creating artificial intelligence i really like that uh, illustration you gave us about scale when referring to the wheel of a car and what size a car would be because i thought for example yeah are you building a car for adults meant to drive on the road or are you building a toy car for a three-year-old to play with that example you gave really struck home so all of these are myths that do run through quite a lot of art that uses ai tools unfortunately you know art that says this is what the ai thinks about x or you know i co-authored this with an ai or the ai made this for me i feel like those things all amplify those narratives that i've got big problems with and i feel like they serve the wrong masters and i don't want to be doing that sort of work so i tend to, to be doing work that really is in opposition to a lot of that i'm very careful about the language i use in my own work but I also am very interested in telling stories through it. You know, the whole purpose of this piece is it's a, a room size installation that has a kind of simulated e-waste landscape. And I'll come back to what e-waste landscape is in a second. But where all of these smart devices, smart speakers, smartphones, tablets have all been thrown away. So it's kind of like a big sort of um, trash heap for smart devices. And uh, they're all talking and telling stories using the voice assistants like Alexa and Google Assistant and Siri. They're all telling stories about these near futures where they have been thrown away and the reasons why they were thrown away. And so through that, I'm trying to tell a lot of different or give a lot of possibilities to my audience as to how we could move past this moment when the future so often right now in a lot of parts of the world is presented as you've kind of got two futures to choose from one is the kind of shiny silver and glass kind of ai utopia of no work and loads of robots and everything kind of comes from nowhere and is repaired seemingly by nobody or it's just the climate collapse and while I think that those two 
futures are meaningful things to think about and they are intention there's a lot of different ways that they could react and respond to each other and there's a lot of different futures that aren't just those two and there are kind of gradients between the two and i'm really interested in telling stories around that and like i say i do this work not necessarily because i think i'm the only one doing it but i just see that there's not enough you know if i'm not seeing loads of people doing this then i feel compelled to do it myself you know i'm sure that there are people that i've missed who are doing fantastic stuff because that's what humans do you know they take tools and they make great things with them and you can't stop people doing that just the same as ways you can't stop people from taking tools and harming other people with them it's just kind of seemingly part of human nature but those are the contributions you know actively that i'm trying to make so you said you'd come back to e-waste in a minute can you elaborate on that for us now please sure so Technologies that have printed circuit boards inside, which can be anything from like a DVD player or a radio right up to an iPhone, tend to have a lot of components which are not recyclable and can't be easily reclaimed or reused once they get damaged or get old or fail in a number of ways. So the reason why we're not currently walking around surrounded by decades of kind of electronic trash is because there is a a kind of a huge somewhat shadow industry or at least shadow in this part of the world shadow industry where electronics waste or e-waste is shipped off to different parts of the world typically in what used to be called the global south but might more meaningfully be called the global majority to places like for example ghana it used to be a lot of places such as rural china parts of south america and and indonesia where these materials would be shipped and then any material value could then attempt to be extracted for example copper is still a valuable material has a lot of value all over the world to a huge number of industries and it's a very common job in certain parts of these countries to basically be wading through these massive kind of like huge landscapes of e-waste trash and anybody listening to this can just have a quick google of like e-waste landscape or landfill and you will see hundreds and hundreds of images of this some of them stretching as far as the eye can see so you get people who wade through all this stuff looking for things like power cables for example and so if you've got a black power cable like a kettle lead or a power cable from any object in the house it's got copper inside of it if you melt off that plastic cabling you can extract the copper typically these are done in very economically deprivated parts of the world where they do not have protective equipment any ppe for this so you see lots of pictures of people just kind of wrapping bits of material around their nose and mouth to try to stop the kind of toxic fumes of the plastic from damaging their bodies which obviously it continues to do but it's all these different ways of kind of doing the labor that is considered to be in some sense too expensive or not worth doing in parts of the world where labor has a higher monetary cost to it and so these spaces are really kind of ways for yeah the global north to dump the stuff they no longer want to look at because it reminds them of the kind of deep existential guilt of consumption onto countries where these sorts of technologies sometimes aren't routinely sold some countries will be receiving broken tools or broken technologies of things that have never been sold in that country to begin with not always but occasionally and so it's a very kind of perverse dynamic that 
has labor woven through it in all these complicated ways, but also has climate and also has consumption and also has late capitalism, obviously being the overarching thing that, you know, tends to seep its way into everything, all kind of tied into these narratives. Hence why that was the framing for this work, that e-waste is something which is largely invisible. You just don't see massive collections of discarded, broken smart devices that are only a few years old you just don't see these all in one place in somewhere like london you know unless you kind of peer into one of the skips at the tip but even then they don't want you to go near the skips people who work in the tip hate you doing that so it's like even the kind of little glimpses we have into that space are like so highly regulated as anybody who's gone to a landfill tip knows you know that there's a lot of rules and a lot of policing going on around that and so we're never kind of meant to see these things so debased so brought low you know to kind of come back to your point about religious imagery and the sublime etc you know it's quite sacrilegious to see something which you generally see advertised on a website like amazon that's like in a nice clean brightly lit kitchen you know, telling somebody about what the weather is or trying to play the Beatles or whatever, you know, a smart speaker might do, for example. Seeing it discarded, broken, not being able to connect, you know, having clear faults on it, not responding to anything that's said to it. These are really interesting ways to present a kind of a hidden life of these technologies to our audiences. And that's why I find them to be kind of compelling mediums to speak through because they've already in some sense grabbed our attention just by being there and just a kind of a final point on that when i was making this work uh, i had a rule for myself that i would only buy technologies that were uh, described as being for parts or not working on ebay so i because you know no one sees that other than me and uh, but but it's part of me kind of being honest and true to my own kind of conceptual processes to be like well i'm not going to buy new technologies to kind of run this thing or using it so i'm like always on ebay kind of looking for broken devices and when i came to buy the sort of 60 or so broken smartphones which are like samsung's and apple's and there's even a few blackberries in there which was great because a blackberry is such a funny object now in 2023 when you think about it but i was buying these boxes of them for about 13 it was to be about 13 pence per phone and these were phones that were retailing for like five, six hundred pounds only a few years ago, produced at incredible costs to both labor. A lot of places in the world where materials for smartphones are produced obviously have massive problems when it comes to the exploitation of labor practices and like very lax labor laws, which is why tech companies use them. But companies have a huge problem in terms of the labor conditions for even when you assemble those technologies after all those ingredients have come out of the ground at huge cost to the earth as well. And so there's these objects which suddenly become worth nothing, but they're so much labor and cost that's gone into them and that was the same for tablets i think i bought about 40 tablet computers including about 30 ipads that they worked out to be about 40 pence each and i could have done that all week every week for months because there is a kind of an unstoppable deluge of people just selling job lots of smartphones of tablets of all these different forms of computers and computer technologies that have just become worth nothing in the sense of a monetary value to the culture that demanded and produced them in some sense. And again, where the notion of e-waste becomes even more kind of twisted and sick when you kind of factor in how little value these devices are seen to have when they're thrown away. And yeah, it was a very, uh, one of the many sobering parts of making work like this. That was one of the particular ones is when I did that search and I was like, wow, I could buy thousands of these and spend about a hundred pounds, you know, which is really a, a depressing sight. At this juncture, we will stick a pin there and pick up 
in the following episode on the issues you raised around labor in relation to this. But for the minute, is there anything else you want to tell us before we wrap up? Thanks very much for this opportunity. I really like Resonance particularly. I've been a big fan for a long time, so it's delightful to, to be on. But also if people are interested in these sorts of discussions and they are interested in thinking about different futures or just want to listen to some speculative fiction about the future and see some broken things, please do go and see the exhibition on at the Science Gallery London right now where um, Newly Forgotten Technologies is being shown. It's running until the end of January, I believe. So you've got a while yet. Wesley Goatley, thanks so much for being with us here on The Workplace to discuss AI, work and the environment in relation to newly forgotten technologies. And that's it for this episode of The Workplace, the program about how to get into, get along and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, NND. The artist Wesley Goatley joined me to discuss his installation titled Newly Forgotten Technologies in the exhibition AI Who's Looking After Me on at Science Gallery london wesley joins me again in the next episode to conclude our discussion please visit london.sciencegallery.com futureeverything.org and wesleygoatley.com for more information this program was first broadcast on community arts radio station resonance 104.4 fm which is a charity please support us at resonancefm.com forward slash donate and on patreon and to keep up with this and all the other work and workplace related conversations that take place here on the workplace please connect with me using hashtag workplace nnd we close with sounds composed from the machine learning voices of Alexa and Siri. Thank you so much for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your company. Till next time, keep finding new and better ways to keep working.